aliens and flying saucers. This is all an illusion. Hey, welcome to the 101st episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, a former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to music critiquing to self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today, my guest is Bill Pennington, the longtime New York Times sports writer and author of the brand new book, which is out this week, Chumps to Champs, How the Worst Teams in Yankees History Led to the 90s Dynasty. And I gotta say, it's one of my favorite sports books of the year and probably one of the best sports books I've read in many years. So Bill and I chat about landing the book deal, about book proposals, about chasing blurbs, as well as the ghosts of Brian Taylor, the assholeness of Mel Hall, and when exactly should a reporter go knock on a door. Bill's one of the best around, and he's right here, right now, on Two Riders, Sling and Yang. First of all, thank you so much for doing this. We're sitting here, and you have a book coming out in two days. Chumps to Champs, How the Worst Teams in Yankees History Led to the 90s Dynasty. You know, I saw on social media this morning you posted you have a signing May 11th at Bookends in Ridgewood, New Jersey. You had a New York Times excerpt run. You're on the MLB Network. You did the Michael K show. What is it for you heading into a book release? I'm not, it doesn't make me nervous, uh, or anything like that. It's, um, it's, you know, you just know it's coming, I think. And, and I think those of us have lived through it a few times know that there's going to be days where you're just going to spend all day on the phone doing a talk show, uh, you know, sports talk, sports talk show, uh, radio. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, having to do any TV is, is a little different for, you know, for the us who aren't TV professionals. It's certainly not as hard as writing the book. If, if, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, this is the easy part of the process. Uh, if you compare it to getting people who don't want to talk to you for your book to get them to somehow talk to you, it's a little odd. It doesn't, it, it, it you know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it should come with the job because the rest of the job of writing a book has nothing to do with promoting it, but it's obviously essential because if you don't promote it, then good chance that uh, nobody will read it. I mean, uh, unless you're an established person that, you know, if, unless you're James Patterson or something, people are going to run and get your book no matter what. I read a quote from Lee Monfield. I might have even heard somebody say it on your podcast, but that Lee Monfield once said, uh, you know, it's a, he was on a book tour and he ran into another author on, who was on his book tour. And he said, no, oh, man, it's a strange business, isn't it? You know, you write these books to write the book. You're a hermit for like two years. And then, uh, and then all of a sudden for two weeks, you're everywhere and you're supposed to be this media personality. Have you figured out what sells books? No, no, no. I mean, I mean, yes and no. I think a compelling good idea obviously has, uh, is the starting point. Having compelling figures or characters in the book is a starting point and then delivering on all of that. Uh, but I also see books all the time that even colleagues of mine will tell me what they're working on and I'll think, geez, that's not going to sell. And then it does and, and you know, does really well. So in that, uh, respect, I don't know, uh, what sells. <laughs> I always think Seabiscuit is a classic example of that where if you came to me as a publisher, it said, I want to do a book about this long ago horse who nobody's heard of. As a publisher, if I were a publisher, I'd be like, no way. I'm not, I'm not spending $5 publishing that book or <laughs> even the blind side. No, I'm not, or boys on the boat. I don't know. Do you, do you feel like there's any formula at all? Any rhyme or reason when you look at the books you've written, 
Is there a rhyme or reason why certain books have sold and some have not? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some things that help, you know, uh, that, are, that are pretty obvious. I mean, uh, uh, seven years ago, I had a book come out called On Par. It was a, a book about, it was called The Everyday Golfer's Survival Guide. And it was the outgrowth of a weekly column I was writing in the Times at the time on golf. It came every Monday during, from like February to October. We, there was a whole full page of golf that I wrote. And that, that, col- that column, it was really a whole page developed the following. So I was pretty sure that book was going to do all right because, you know, it, it already had a following and was, the, you know, it was the outgrowth of this column in, in, a, in a, a pretty big platform. So it sort of came with its own audience and the times was in on the book. So they promoted it, you know, so that, that I knew would work. Um, you know, I wrote a biography of Billy Martin that, you know, I was fairly sure that Billy Martin was a, was a compelling figure that people of a certain age, especially, you know, knew and thought he was a nutcase. And, and, and so this was a chance to say, well, you know, he was a little bit, but he also wasn't. And he, he had a lot more going on than maybe, you know, and, and it was a very complex life. And so I sort of thought that would, um, I would say in this book, uh, uh, I was a little, I was a little more worried just because I think people have forgotten that whole period when the Yankees were terrible, the worst team in baseball from 90, you know, from 89 to 93. And even after that continued to struggle for variety of reasons. And so, you know, you're, you're, it's a little bit of a leap of faith that people are going to believe that there's a story in this five year period that they never have really thought about. You know, I think, you know, I think most baseball fans just think the Yankees have always been good and there's been no break in there where the things were actually disastrous. So this one, I would say I was had a little more uh, worry, or uh, uh, this one was more of a leap of faith. So it's so I read the book. I told you this, or I love this book. I'm not just saying oh, that. I loved it. I re- it's kind of funny. It was good timing. We were taking a vacation for three days, and I said, "I'm not bringing my phone. I'm just not. Gonna, I'm going to try life without my phone." <laughs> and I just happened to be reading your book, and I just was absorbed times a thousand. And the you know the names are catnip for me from Mel Hall to Jack McDowell, to Hensley Mullins. But I kind of agree with you. If I were a publisher, if I were, you know, Howard Mifflin, it seems like this is a sell. Like, you would have to convince me, okay, why are people going to want to read about the Yankees when they were crappy? So how did you actually get the book to you? How did you convince them? Or what was your pitch to them? This is a book worth writing. I focused on some big names uh, as part of it. George Steinbrenner, uh, Derek Jeter, you know, Jorge Posada, Mariano Rivera, you know, they're all, you know, recurring characters in the book. And I think I focused also on the fact that the, you know, the, you know, maybe the most storied uh, sports franchise in North America, uh, the Yankees uh, are, are always um, a draw and people are interested in what they're doing. And then, you know, kind of counterintuitively, I was saying, yes, but this is a Yankee book, not about all their success. This is a Yankee book about their absolute failure and the fact that in 1990, for all intents and purposes, you know, the Yankees were the, were the best sports franchise in the 20th century. But in 1990, that whole run looked like it was over, that the, that the empire was totally broken and, and never going to come back. Uh, you know, the owner was suspended permanently, not just a little while, permanently suspended. The team was terrible. The attendance was down. The stadium itself was literally falling apart. A beam fell out of the upper deck and crashed into the mezzanine, fortunately, when nobody was there. But so I focused on those things. Okay, big names, well-known franchise, but a little bit of a twist. 
the team's terrible. And even when they get out of it, there's a bittersweet ending because all the people that help, you know, bring about the resurrection get fired, basically. I consider my book proposals to be sort of bullshit. And what I mean is, you know, my agent will say whatever, it needs to be 20 pages, and I'll break down chapters, and I'll write about blah, blah, blah. But I haven't really done the reporting. Like, I haven't, I think, how can I tell you what my book is really going to be about? You know, I didn't know that much about Walter Payton before researching Walter Payton. How much of the, how much of the proposal is, um, guesswork versus sort of a guarantee of what you will be delivering? Yeah. I, I think there's a little bit of guesswork. Um, I, I think if you're, I think if you're convinced of the framework, that's okay. I mean, I think if you know where the, the story is basically going, and I may be fortunate in that, you know, the, the, the books I've done, I do know where they're going. You know, I mean, I, you know, I, when I wrote about Billy Martin, you know, the, in the introduction, I, you know, I write all about his death, uh, which I happen to, you know, have been there like the day after the crash and or several hours after the crash. I knew a lot about his death. Um, you know, and in uh, writing about the Yankees from 90 to 95, I, I know where it's going. So, um, so, to, so in the big ways, I don't think there's any guesswork or surprise, at least not in, in my case so far. Um, but you're right. I would agree that some of the stuff that makes the, the book really come alive are things that you won't find out until you wade in. Um, so I, I, I totally agree with you there and that, you know, yeah, I knew, I knew, I knew Billy Martin's story, but until I went and back to Berkeley, California, where he was raised and hung out with his former classmates and, you know, sat in the living room of where he grew up and hung out with his sisters. And, you know, I didn't know anything about that part of his life, you know. So, uh, so yeah, there, there, there better be revelations along the way. I mean, I, you know, I, I, if there aren't revelations along the way, then, then I think you'd be in trouble. So what is it? What is the reporting like for this kind of book? Like, um, do you go back and compile a day by day library of the Yankees from 89 to 92? How do you find players? Like, what do you, and how long does it take? Like, what is the specifically the research like for this kind of book? I, I am fairly methodical and, and work, uh, chronologically as best I can. But, you know, as you know, when it comes to reaching people, they don't, they don't all just, everybody doesn't just call you back in order, you know? <laughs> so, uh, uh, um, but yes, I mean, um, my wife helps me in on my, on my book. She's a, I mean, she's not trained to be a researcher. She would, she's a retired CPA, but she'll create these massive archives of, uh, of material that was written on each of these periods or in a case, like if you're doing a biography about that person and, and then together we'll kind of arrange it chronologically and yeah, you have a big voluminous file. And then I just start picking off. I just literally start making a name somewhat chronological. Um, of the people I need. And, you know, in the case of like, uh, the Billy Martin book, but even in this book a little bit, you know, you got to kind of work with the older people first. I mean, it sounds awful, but, uh, I'm doing the Billy Martin book. I can't tell you how many people I interviewed. And then by the time I was actually writing their manuscript, they had died. Um, right. You know, Errol Weaver, you know, um, so many different people that, you know, like these teams and, you know, Billy Martin played in the 1950s. Those guys are, you know, getting hard. You know, a lot of them are gone already. So you do sort of have to look at it a little bit like, okay, so, um, how many of these people are, you know, uh, you know, up in years and, and you might want to try and reach out to them first. Um, but also who's going to be harder and who's going to, how many layers, you know, like if you're trying to get to somebody like Jeter, it's going to take months. 
uh, of, uh, you know, back and forth to, to try and uh, get even, you know, 20 minutes with him. If it's somebody like Don Mattingly, well, you just look at the, you know, baseball schedule and you say, okay, where is he going to be? Oh, he's coming to New York and this day in June, he'll be there for three games. Um, uh, uh, you know, then you start working through to say, okay, which one of these days are you available to him? And you get in touch with him. Um, but, uh, that part of it is, uh, a little bit like a scavenger hunt seems to me. And, um, I've been fortunate that at least, you know, these are last two books from baseball books, you know, in the baseball community, it's generally fairly easy to get people. And a lot of them stay connected to the game anyway. It's not a, you know, a lot of them are not just sitting at home. They're usually still a scout or in spring training, they come and they hang around the club just because that's what a lot of old time baseball people do. They never leave completely. They at least go spend two or three weeks in spring training. So I got a lot done in spring training, uh, just being in, um, Florida or Arizona and you could get, you know, you could get 20 people in a, you know, three day stay down there or something like that. So, uh, that's how I do. It. I mean, you know, it's like a, it's like a network and you sort of look at it and figure out where they are. And then sometimes there's those people that are just really hard to get and it's almost, <laughs> it's almost like fun, you know, like, okay, how can I convince Reggie Jackson hates to talk about Billy Martin? How in God's name can I, and really hasn't for years. Um, how in God's name am I going to get Reggie to talk about him? Uh, stuff like that. How did you get Reggie to talk about Billy Martin? Uh, he has a couple of people that are like, he has an old time agent that I knew a little bit. who's really not his agent anymore. And I kind of worked on him and he kind of, he kind of worked on Reggie a little bit. And, uh, and I got a little bit lucky in that, uh, Reggie had a book come out, um, in the course of that time when I was trying to get him. And while I wasn't going to mention his book in my book, it wouldn't really make any sense. It's not coming, you know, the timing one. He nonetheless was out there a little bit. And, um, so I basically, I basically said, Hey, you know, you've said plenty about this guy. You don't have to talk to me, but it's now he's been dead for whatever 25 years. You've gotten older. You have new perspectives. I'd like to get something a lot more updated on how you really feel about it. And it still wasn't a great conversation because he still doesn't like talking about him. And, and I think doesn't think a lot of good things about him. It's not his favorite subject by any means, but he did. He did talk about it. Most people will ultimately want to kind of contribute, you know, like if they know, they understand this is going to be a book that's going to be widely seen and, and they are just a line in there that they refuse to talk to you about it. I don't think they really want to do that. At least that's my experience. Do you just make every call? Is that your philosophy? Call everybody? Yeah. Talks? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there are people that don't, but not that many. Um, usually if you can get somebody on the phone, they're going to talk to you. It's the people that won't even give you their number. You can't find their number. You know, I wrote a book on the history of the Heisman Trophy 15, 16 years ago. You know, like Bo Jackson just, you know, uh, the, the the message that came back. Well, there's two two interesting stories. Two people wouldn't talk to me in, in this Heisman book I was doing. One was O.J. Simpson who said he would talk to me, but only for $25,000. And the other one was Bo Jackson, who just, I talked to his publicist, this woman who served as publicist over and over. She was extremely nice. She thought it was a great idea. She, she thought it was a great idea, but for whatever reason, the message always just come, kept coming back. Nah, Toe doesn't want to do it. Do you get mad at Bo Jackson? Like, does that, does that piss you off or do you understand? Are, are you sort of accepting some people just don't want to talk? It doesn't piss me off because I guess I never feel like it's anybody's obligation to talk. I'm not a part of the uh, law enforcement agencies or whatever. It's, and 
You know, I, I don't feel like they're not talking to me because they're hiding something. It's their prerogative. It doesn't really piss me off. It Maybe it disappoints me. Maybe I've seen them talk about it in the past. And I, I know that, that maybe they're, they're just not giving it, uh, you know, I've reached, I've reached them on a bad day or something. And they just don't feel like doing it when I actually know they've got a lot. But, I, but no, I don't like, and, and, and really long as they're, um, long as they're, they're have reasons or whatever else. Like I remember I had a conversation with Tony Kubek during the Billy Martin book and he, you know, he got on the phone and he, and he was saying, he says, Hey, you know, I, I know you've been talking to other people. I've actually talked to them about how, you know, what, what your, those conversations were like. And they all said that I should talk to you and, you know, that you seem to be, you have an interesting perspective on this and, and it's going to be a good book and that you're open to different ideas, you know, nice things. But he said, you know, some of these things that I know you're going to want to talk about were just like, you know, you know, Billy and I as teammate, Billy and I as, uh, you know, sort of colleagues, of, you know, and, and, uh, and I don't think he thought he was protecting Billy, but I think he thought that for him to speak frankly, he would end up saying things about Billy that maybe he didn't want out in print. Cause I think he saw, you know, Billy in some vulnerable times too. So, uh, his, his general approach was, you know, it's nothing against you personally, you know, about, you know, I'm looking forward to the book, but I don't want to say what I would probably have to say. Right. Hey, you know, right. how do you argue with that? You know, I once, um, Sports Illustrated once sent me to do a story on White Sox first baseman Paul Canerco. And I got there and he said, you know, I just don't really want to be profiled. He goes, nothing against you. I just don't really want to be profiled. And I kind of thought, that's fair. You know, I'm not paying you to do it. If, if I do get offended, it's the people that want me to pay them. That I think is Funny. offensive. I had Lenny yeah. Dykstra insist he wouldn't talk to me for a book unless I flew him to New York, put him up in like a five-star hotel and paid him X amount of money. I was like, yeah, it's not happening. Yeah, I think there's, I think a few people have had that conversation with Lenny Dykstra. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, quick word from our sponsor. Okay, do the app like I told you. It's not very good. Just do it. Hi, this is Casey Perlman, and you're listening to the 101st episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang, hosted by the very handsome, smart, and influential Jeff Perlman. Dad, I can't say that. Why not? Because it's a lie. Can't I just do the part about this podcast being sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, and tell people to go to 503-sports.com to check out all the amazing gear? I honestly prefer you talk about how handsome I am. You look like a baked potato with moldy ear flaps. Well, you're my daughter. I'm adopted. Um, <laughs> there are two people in your book who fascinate me. And they're, it's not Jeter, it's not Posada, it's not even Buck, who I found really interesting. Um... Number one is Brian Taylor, who famously was the number one overall pick in the, in the amateur draft, was going to be the, I don't know, the next Koufax and, um, hurt his arm in a bar fight and never became. There's a part in the book where you said, uh, Taylor has never given an interview about the precise details of what happened. He answered phone calls to his Buford home in 2017, but hung up whenever he learned there was a reporter calling to ask about his days as a grading pit, greatest pitching prospect in Yankees history. Uh, that is you, right? Making the call. Yeah. Yeah. I had a number for him and it was a good, I'm pretty sure it was a good number. Yeah. I called him and he'd answer and I'd tell him who I was and what I wanted to talk about and he'd hang up. And then <laughs> the same thing would happen. I called a, a few times and, uh, you know, and I'd try a different approach. Look, Brian, I know you don't want to talk about this, but I've talked to 
your cousin and I've talked to, you know, this people have talked to some of the police down there, you know, maybe you can shed some light, you know, I don't want to just tell it through their eyes. And then he'd just hang up. I mean, <laughs> he'd listen, but he didn't, he hasn't talked about it in uh, many years. I mean, I, I, basically since he stopped playing. So he hasn't talked about it in almost 25 years. So uh, that's where his place is, you know, and of course he ends up being, arrested and jailed for selling drugs. So, I mean, he, he knows where that the conversation is going to go eventually. I mean, if that chapter hadn't happened, maybe now he would be willing to talk about the baseball chapter of his life. But I, I imagine it's the incarceration chapters that make him unwilling to speak now. How far is it okay to go trying to get an interview? Cause I always battle with this. Is it, would it have been okay if you flew down and knocked on his door? Are, is, are there a certain number of phone calls where after, I don't know, three or four, you need to stop? Like, how far How far is it okay in, in your sort of ethical compass to go? In terms of number of phone calls, I would I would probably draw the line certainly at five. Uh, I think after that, you're pestering. Um, right. And I don't, I think it's fine to go and knock on the front door. I've done that a million times. I did not do it in, in, in various stories, you know, in our, you know, our jobs, our regular, you know, what, you know, as a newspaper reporter, you do it all the time. Um, so I didn't happen to be in that part of North Carolina. I didn't, and I didn't think it was worth flying all the way down there just to knock on his door. Um, especially after the phone calls I had where I didn't think it would be fruitful. I, you know, yes, in person, people will sometimes open up or just invite you into the living room it, de- it definitely happens but i just didn't do it in this case but yeah i think knocking on the door i mean you, you have to do that you have to do it uh, plenty of times and i don't you know some people get upset you know they're like you know what are you doing on my front stoop you know, they th- find it kind of as a personal violation or something and i don't really see it that way i mean you obviously have to be polite and you're and you're they ask you to leave you leave but um doesn't usually work that way i mean i i you know, some people don't answer the phone too. You know, I mean, so you haven't really, sometimes you haven't really made the effort. You know, like, for example, if, if I couldn't reach Brian Taylor or wasn't confident that I wasn't, you know, but I was, I was asking for him and he, he would say it was him. So I knew I was talking to him, but I mean, if I couldn't reach him, then I, maybe I would have flown down there and tried that. So I don't think there's any problem with that. Some people do. I mean, you know, you, you know, you have people, you know, slam the door or, or you know, make sure the, the angry barking dog is, is barking right through the, screen door like if you don't leave soon i'm gonna sick this dog on you does happen what's your best or worst knock on a door i feel like i have about 10 now <laughs> it's funny i think of the ones the most distressful ones first and and it was just probably the worst story i've ever worked on which was the jerry sandusky case in penn state and we we there was about three of us down there or in in the state college area for a month or so including Pete Samuel, who's no longer with the times, you know, but, uh, and we did a lot of knocking on doors and it's such a joyless, awful, uh, story and subject that, uh, all of those were kind of, um, no fun. And, and again, in that case, maybe crying more than we should have, but it, it, it was our job to try and find people who could help. Uh, and we weren't really looking for victims. We were looking for more like people and employees and stuff. Paterno had a prominent secretary that uh, had been with him for a long time. We were trying to uh, talk to her and um, stuff like that. So uh, those were probably the worst. And and those were literally scenes like the one I just said, where the, you know, the, the husband of one of the people we were trying to reach 
was had the dog, you know, the dogs, you know, like holding by the collar and was definitely going to let him go if I didn't turn and get the hell out of there right away. I'll tell you, in terms of Billy Martin chapter, when it, it turned a book, the one of the chapters, the, the people that live in the house or lived in the house where he, you know, where he died, basically, he died right at the end of his driveway. Uh, I just knocked on their door one day because I couldn't reach them. They weren't answering their phone and, and they weren't, uh, you know, I couldn't get through to them. And I just drove up uh, the driveway, knocked on the door and ended up spending like six hours there with them touring the whole property because it was like wow. a 70 acre property. And, they wanted me to stay the night and they were, they were fantastic. They had all this Billy Martin memorabilia in the house and that had been kind of left behind. And it was turned out to be awesome. They were telling me all these stories about, you know, how people come knocking on their door all the time. And it's like a shrine to Billy Martin shrine to some people. And so, uh, that's probably the one that worked out the best. Although that wasn't terribly intimidating. It just, I had to get off. It's not an easy place to find in upstate New York. I had to. I did have to sort of get off the road and go find him. I just love those moments that kind of make it worthwhile. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, it is, you know, there is a, a certain amount of, it's not as important, but it is a certain as detective work, but there's a certain amount of detective work sort of, uh, in it. And, um, it, and you have to be willing to do that, or I don't think you'd be highly successful, uh, in, in this business. I mean, I, I feel lucky in that. I started out in news, not in sports, in newspapers when I got out of college. And, um, you know, I had to do a lot of that stuff, you know, in, in bad neighborhoods and, and dark at night, you know, just, you know, all kinds of places you'd have to go. That was just part of the job. And, uh, it was good training. It was really good training. The other guy I love in this book, and I feel like he's the star who wouldn't get star billing. And he's now number, um, in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. He wears uniform number 01. 581384 is Mel Hall, who, um, <laughs> who couldn't have been a, I mean, it's kind of funny. I've covered, I'm sure you, obviously we both have we've covered plenty of jerks in professional sports. Few you hear of who are more disliked by teammates than Mel Hall. And Mel Hall was all <laughs> over your book. And then he got, uh, he got sentenced to 45 years for molesting kids. And now he's in jail in Texas. It's kind of interesting. Like when you have a character like Mel Hall, who is not a huge name. He certainly doesn't go down in Yankee lore for very much. Can you go full bore on that character? You kind of have to, there's only so much you're allowed to write about Mel Hall before you lose the reader. Can you, can you go crazy on Mel Hall? Cause I loved everything about Mel Hall in your book. I mean, I think it, he became uh, a symbol of, you know, what, what was a part of the symbol of what was going wrong there. In other words, like there was all, when, when the team was really, really bad, there was all kinds of bad karma coming out of everywhere, you know, and, 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 and some of it was totally not anyone's fault. Like Andy Hawkins pitching an eight inning, no hitter and nonetheless losing the game, which had never happened before in baseball. So that is, that is exemplifies bad karma, <laughs> but then right. there's the bad karma that you can control. And having Mel Hall on that team is an example of that and keeping him around even after they knew uh, that he was not a good teammate and that he was not uh, helping foster any growth in the younger players, indeed was in inhibiting it. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a symbol of, of you know, mismanagement, not a little bit. It's a, a symbol of mismanagement. It's a symbol of saying, look, we don't have very many good players. We can't get rid of the one of the few guys who can hit. But you know what? You have to because you're not, 
you're not going to get anywhere if he's one of your veteran guys and supposedly a leader. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think you, I did, I, I think I did want to show, uh, that, the, you know, what was going on there and, and, you know, not to, not to make him the villain, but there's, there's people that, uh, were dragging things down and didn't care. So yeah, you have to, you have to highlight that. It's, it's an exam. It's one of the things that was going wrong. They had, you know, he, they had a couple of guys that were, you know, weren't helping the cause, but he was maybe the one that was the most chief. And the other part of that, the reason that I, I wrote about him more was that one of the heroes of the book, if you ask me, or heroes might not the right, be the right word, but one of the guys who becomes a big protagonist is Bernie Williams. You know, I've always felt like Bernie Williams, you know, they got the core four, but Bernie's not part of it because he's five years older than the rest of the guys. And it just, does, he didn't come in at the same time, but I mean, he's as important to everything that happened, you know, in the championship run as anybody else. He's, he's, maybe you could say Rivera is more important and, and I don't know. It's obviously most Yankees fans would say Jeter is more important, but, but, you know, I don't know. I think he's, he's right up there. He's, and, and so Mel Hall is just sort of terrorizing Bernie Williams. So he's standing in the way of the development of this great young star. So, that's an obvious, uh, you know, narrative to, to highlight, you know, that not only is he, you know, not only is he, you know, not, not a good teammate, he's, he's actually standing, he's really standing in the way of, of the budding superstar. Right. There were actually, I felt like there were books within your book that I would love to write that would sell seven copies. Like I would love to write the Mel Hall biography. I would love to write the Brian Taylor biography. Nobody buys them, but I feel like there's some really amazing just amazing stories within the stories. And I always struggle. Like I'm working on a book now where I really struggle because I fall in love with the minor characters. And I look up and I've written 25 pages on a guy. Nobody's really going to care about. I don't do not, do not have that issue. Does that not happen to you? Yeah. Or I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what's happened to me more is that I find someone who I think is really fascinating. And then, you know, when you actually spend five pages on that guy or, or, or whoever. And then, uh, and then you go back and read it, you know, you keep going and you go back and read it months later. You say, you know what, this is really distracting the, the storyline here. Yeah. You know, I, I, I love this guy and these crazy things he did and blah, 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 blah. But you know what? I'm, you know, I was talking about Mickey Mandel and now I'm talking about this sec backup second baseman who was a, you know, crazy person. And, and, you know, maybe I care, but, you know, don't you think the readers are going to want to hear more about the rest, rest of Mickey Mantle's uh, story, not, not this other guy. So I, I say that's more what I've done is I've kind of fallen in love or the other thing that happened, and I, you know, you know, this, and you, you know, you spend an inordinate amount of time getting someone or getting the full story on something. So when you get the full story, it may, it may not be that great, but because you spend so much time, you feel <laughs> yeah. like, <laughs> well, shit, I spend so much time on this. I'm putting it in the book, but it doesn't belong in the book. You know, you have to bite the bullet and say, oh, shit, I spent two weeks trying to do this, but it's got to go. That's so funny. So I recently, I'm working on a book about the, the Shaq Kobe era Lakers. And mm -hmm. I spent a ton of time just trying to get like Glenn Rice on the phone. And I finally, mm -hmm. you know, Glenn, I went to his house. I left a book. I didn't get him. Finally, I get him on the phone. I wrap up the interview. I get him for an hour. I'm so happy. I read through the transcript of the interview and I realize he told me almost nothing. 
but I, I'm, I'm so happy I got them that I'm like, right. you know, I, I, like I literally am putting Glenn Rice quotes in and then thinking, you know what? These are not very good, but the work right. I put into it, I hate that feeling. Yeah. Or you feel at least like you have to prove to people, you know, yes. like, especially if it's somebody important, you're, like, you're going to ask, why did he talk to Glenn Rice? So you have to sort of prove that you did it, um, which is probably okay. Just don't waste, you know, if you're really nothing to say, you know, go ahead and, you know, let it go, I guess. But it is hard. There's no question. It's aggravating. Also, don't you feel like interviews open up other interviews? Like, I get Shaq to talk. Then I can tell all these other guys when they say, well, who have you spoken with? Why I spoke with Shaq. I feel like one interview is oftentimes a gateway to 15 other interviews. So true. Absolutely. So absolutely. Absolutely. It happens all the time. Um, you've, you've, sent out emails or a feeler or a call or, and, uh, they're not even responding to you. And, um, and then all of a sudden they respond to you. And it's because, you know, you, I mean, it happened to me, as I said, in this, this Billy Martin book a lot, where, you know, cause there was you know, a lot of older people and they're maybe a little suspicious of the media because they, in their day when they were playing, they didn't deal with them day by day like they do now. So, uh, you know, they weren't going to talk, they weren't even going to answer. And then all of a sudden they get back to you and, and, Several times it, it would be, yeah, well, you know, Bobby Richardson, I was talking to Bobby Richardson and he said that he talked to you. And so I decided, he said, yeah, you should give him a call. And so blah, 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 you know, so there's no question. In fact, when I was doing the Billy Martin book, one of the first people I went to was his son. And his son is, is, is a great guy, easy guy to talk to, but he's, you know, he's very, he's pretty little protective of his father's reputation because he feels like he, it always just comes down to like Billy is this crazy person. He was a drunk who kicked dirt on um, people, you know, on umpires and, and went through life as a hellion and really, you know, had, had no redeeming value, you know, other than being a, a smart baseball guy. So we had to have, a, you know, a long couple of conversations. And once I, and it wasn't even an interview, it was to sort of convince him of what I, you know, how I saw the book going. And why I wanted to do it. And then once I had him on my side, he put me in touch with all kinds of people. And it always was the same thing. You know, like, this is the book he's going to write. He's going to try and tell the whole story about my father's, you know, life. And you should talk to him. You should talk to him. You know, like, and then, you know, in Billy Martin Jr.'s case, he's really eager to try and get his dad into the Hall of Fame. So it became like, you know, I think this is one, this is a book that could help get him in the Hall of Fame. It hasn't happened. But, 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 but to, but to your point, yeah, you got to have some allies and, you know, especially in a, you know, in a biography, especially, but any of those books you need, you know, you need some allies that'll, that'll open up the other doors. You know, like you're not going to get all the coaches on the coaching staff if the manager who was above them doesn't sort of endorse you, unless it's with coaches who didn't like that manager. <laughs> I want to ask you about something I've never, I've never talked to another author about this. And it's a subject that fascinates me. My least favorite part of the book process is getting people to blurb the book jacket where they say to you, mm -hmm. all right, we need three people or we need four blurbers. And, mm -hmm. you know, because you've got, I'm sure you've gotten them too. You get the requests from people. And how important do you consider book jacket blurb? Do we need them? Are they necessary? And number two, do you, do you mind requesting them? Do you feel like people even read your books when you, re when you request the blurb? Does it matter? To answer the first, the first question, I, I, I think you do need him because I, but I don't know how much. Uh, it seems like people expect them. Um, even if, I mean, certainly in the, if you go back 20 years and people mo bought most of their books in physical bookstores, 
I do think people looked at the book jacket. They definitely read the summary. They probably saw what other people had to say. I think it, I think it matters. Um, how much they have to read it? Yeah, I, I think if, I don't think one chapter would be enough. I, uh, most of the time, I feel like the people have, have read it and, um, and I, you can usually tell by the blurb, I think, how much they've read, but it is a weird, I, it is a weird process of asking for them that it's not normal for, you know, there's nothing else that we do in our jobs, generally speaking, that is similar to trying to get people to, you know, praise something you've done. I mean, we don't, I, you know, like maybe some people do. Most of us are not in the business of walking around, you know, press boxes or elsewhere saying, Hey, what'd you think of my story yesterday? You know, I mean, right. <laughs> it doesn't happen. So now you're saying, yeah, you know, would you please read this book? And geez, I hope you say something nice. I mean, but you know, you know, I've only done it when I really liked the book and, and I was happy to help. I mean, you know, it's a hard business and you know, if, I looked at it as like, if this is a worthy effort and, and I can help in any way, I'm happy to do it. And I, and I think the people that have helped me, I, I, I would hope they feel sort of the same way that, uh, that this, it's a hard business to get books published and to get people to read them. And, and, um, and if you can help, then why not help? I always remember when my first book came out, my agent represented a big, big, big time author. And I was told he doesn't blur, he doesn't do blurbs. And I always remember that. I feel like over the past five years, I might lead the league in blurbs because I never turn anyone down unless, I mean, if the book is terrible, I, I just pretend I didn't have time, but I just, I feel like it's so, this business is hard and writing these books is torture and to not do someone the same favor you asked for. It just feels kind of wrong to me. You're absolutely right. The heart, it is really hard and you got to. You gotta appreciate that and you gotta, it's hard to get them done. It's hard to get people that want to publish them. It's, um, you know, yeah, I think there's a little bit of, we gotta to stick together is what part of the mentality for why the blurbs continue. Well, Bill, being serious, first of all, thank you for doing this. And, um, I love this book and I would, that's, there's my vocal blurb for this book. I love this book. It's <laughs> one of my favorite baseball books I've ever read. Seriously, congratulations on a great effort and, and thank you so much for doing this with me. oh absolutely and that thanks that's that's great to hear from coming from you jeff I and mean, you've you've written so many terrific books that i've read as well i want to thank today's guest bill pennington for joining me on two writers slinging yang you can follow bill on twitter at bill m pennington and read his work in the new york times this podcast is sponsored by 503 sports kings of the throwback sports merchandise you can visit the website at 503-sports.com one can listen to Two Riders Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the Dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.